Right, I think that's all the announcements. So let's now continue as we read God's Word together from the book of Hebrews. We're on the final chapter of the book of Hebrews. So may the Lord open His Word to us as we read it together. Chapter 13, reading from the first verse. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as you were together with them in prison and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed be kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Remember your leaders who spoke the Word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be carried away with all kinds of strange teachings. It's good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not eating ceremonial foods which are of no benefit to those who do. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burnt outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good to those who, and, and to share with others. For with such sacrifice, God is pleased. Have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give account. Do this so that their work may be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Pray for us. We are sure that we have a clear conscience and a desire to live honorably in every way. I particularly urge you to pray so that I may be restored to you soon. Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear my word of exhortation, for in fact, I have written to you quite briefly. I want you to know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he arrives soon, I will come with him to you. Greet all your leaders and all God's people. 
Those from Italy send you their greetings. Grace be with you all. Amen. Um, we've reached the end, though. Not the end of the hymn, but the end of the book of Hebrews. We've reached the finish line, and we've actually been doing this. We've not done every chapter, but we've been doing this for about eight or nine weeks now to get here. And uh, you get that line in verse 22 where, where, where the, 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 the author says, I hope you receive this letter. It's just a brief one. Thirteen chapters. I don't know about you when I write an email. It's a bit shorter than that, I hope. But here it is, all 13 chapters of it. And if you remember where we started with, um, it started with tired Christians. Tired Christians that were almost at the point of giving up. If I can have the screen. Um, they were almost at the point of giving up. And the pastor, as he writes this letter, doesn't say to them simply, oh, no, pull your socks up, keep going, on you get, do your best. Got to keep on going on with it, put up with it, step up her lip, guys. Rather, he begins to preach a sermon, and the sermon points them to Jesus. Jesus, he says, is the one that the prophet spoke of. Jesus is greater than Moses or angels. Jesus is the heir of all things. Jesus is the beginning and the end. Jesus is the great high priest who understands because he's been human. Jesus is the great high priest who is praying for us the whole time. Jesus is the great high priest who has offered himself as the sacrifice so that it is finished and our destiny, our hope is secure. Jesus is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. And therefore, what he's saying to them is this. You're running this race and it's hard and you're flopping, but I'm going to tell you something. You'll get there guaranteed. And that guarantee isn't because you're good enough or fast enough or because you can do it. That guarantee is because Jesus has put himself on the line and he has guaranteed everything that you need. So you cannot fail. And it's because of that hope, that sure and certain hope that we're able to keep going. It makes everything worthwhile as we labor for the future of a church. We do it because we know that it's guaranteed. As we labor for things to be better and justice in this world, we do it because we know that the God who made the world has guaranteed it. As we work to dry eyes and heal hearts, we do it because we know that one day God will do all these things. And that is what keeps us going. So a whole sermon that does nothing but point to Jesus. Can I give you a piece of advice? If you ever go and you listen to a sermon where a preacher is giving you moral advice, old man's advice about how you might live your life and learn from his great experience, don't listen. Because there is one thing and one thing only a preacher has to offer you, and that is Jesus. If the sermon doesn't point you towards the Lord Jesus, that it is not Christian teaching, don't listen. There is no part of the Scripture that is not pointing to Jesus. So here we have it. The last chapter. And the last chapter is very, very practical. It's going to say, in a sense, here is what this means as you go forward. But all of it, all of it will be connected directly to what he has taught 
about Jesus. It starts with hospitality. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters, and do not forget to show hospitality to strangers. For doing this, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. You know, I, I love this. Here is this preacher, and he's told us that Jesus is the firstborn of all time, the heir of all things, the great high priest, the eternal sacrifice, sitting on the right hand of God. And he says, as it were, therefore, having seen all these things about Jesus, put the kettle on. Get the family together. Have a party. Invite the neighbors. You know, sometimes Christians will talk about instructions in the Bible, you know, do not commit adultery, do not do this, do not do that. But one of the instructions in the Bible is simply this, practice hospitality. Paul says that. Show hospitality without grumbling. That's Peter. John says, offer hospitality, and we've got it here again. Hospitality. And when you've got three apostles all telling you the same thing, it's time to listen. And I wonder where they got that from, and then I thought about it, and I thought, well, I know exactly where they got it from, because they got it from Jesus. Read the gospel accounts. The one thing you'll notice as you read the gospel accounts is that Jesus was always sitting down eating with people. Everywhere you go, there's a party, there's a meal, there's a dinner, there's feeding 5,000. It seems to be about food, food, food. Jesus was definitely on the social committee. You know, everything seemed to be about food. Meals with the disciples, fish by the Lake of Galilee, a meal with Martha and Mary. This guy liked his dinners. And it wasn't just that, because it was also with strangers. Zacchaeus, put the kettle on. Simon, I want to come and have tea with you. Pharisees and people who didn't like him, I'll sit and have a meal with you as well. It seemed to be all the time. In fact, it, it, it says in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, you know what they said about me? They said, the Son of Man comes eating and drinking. <laughs> he was making jokes about it. They called him at one point a gluttard and a drunkard. He was a party animal. That was what came across all the time with Jesus. And, and here, it's as if the book of Hebrews, as it's told us about Jesus the Christ, Jesus the exalted one, the one who sits on the right hand of God and prays for us, and he's reminding us this is the same Jesus that liked a good party. Our Christian faith is all about relationships, encounters, and togetherness. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Now, it's interesting, that term, brothers and sisters, because we've heard that so often that we've forgotten the enormity of that. You know when you see one of these, these movies, and it's, it's about Amish people or, or Quakers in New England, and they're all calling one another, hello, brother John, and hello, sister, sis, sister Helen, and, uh, and, and sister Anne, and, and, and you know, you, you so they see those things and they use that term. But that goes right back to Jesus, and you'll find this in all of the, the New Testament an invitation that Christians should call each other brother and sister. 
And that's not really about terminology so much as it's about how we view each other. We are family. We are supposed to have the same sort of loyalty and the same sort of love that your family, well, at least ideally would have, you know? So look around you today as you're having coffee and just greet folk and say, you know, hello, Sister Agnes, you know? You know? Hello, Brother Ian, Brother Andrew. This is your family. It's sibling language. And you know, one of the things that the New Testament is very clear on is the more that you have a relationship with Jesus, the more that you get this relationship with one another. Jesus always did that. There were a group of disciples who he really got to know very well. A Christian simply cannot do this on his own. You know, people say to me sometimes, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Nah, sorry, wrong. There's a few buts there, but basically wrong. The New Testament does not ever speak of Christianity without community of people coming together who love the Lord. There is no solitary Christianity in the Bible anywhere. Keep on, he says. Now, keep on is important because he's already told them not to give up the habit of meeting together. And the two things go together because the danger is if you dislodge yourself from the family, then you dislodge yourself from the head of the family that's Jesus. And those two things are both essential. But also that, that keep on, I think, reminds us of something else. It, it, it reminds us that actually it's hard it's not natural to have this new family and just suddenly find it, it, it's easy. You've got to work at it. You know, Jesus said to his disciples, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And there's a little bit when I read that thing, how is that a new commandment, Jesus? It's there in Deuteronomy, love your neighbor as yourself. How is this new? And I think what Jesus is saying is, actually, this is new because you need to keep hearing it and hearing it and hearing it because it's not easy to do it. You know, other Christians make this very, very difficult for us at times. If you're going to be part of a Christian family, you can only do that if you're connected to Jesus. Why? Because I need to be forgiven every day so that I forgive every day. You can't live in church unless you're going to forgive every day. Because these Christians will drive you insane if you don't. And you know what I'm talking about. We will be filled with rage and bitterness and resentment and all the things because these people that we are being asked to have a relationship with aren't like Jesus, they're like us. And therefore, the only way to do it is that we have this great sense of the grace and forgiveness that's been shown us by Jesus. And then together we learn to forgive and show grace to one another. You will need forgiveness in spades if you're going to keep going with the church. The other side of this, though, is strangers. And this story relates to Abraham. Abraham, at one point, has three guys, travelers, and he invites them into his, his house, and he gives them some food, and it turns out that they're angels from God. But actually, what this is saying to us is this. The church needs to have a deep fellowship between Christian brothers and sisters, but it almost always has to be outlooking. That's a difficult thing to get right. Deep relationships that are always seeking to include people that are not part of the group. 
But that's exactly what Jesus did. He had his 12 friends. He spent his time with them. But they were living amidst the crowds, and they were constantly inviting folk on the fringes to come and be part of this. The church always has to have a deep fellowship and always out looking. I don't think when he says you, you might entertain angels out unawares, what he means is that, that there might be some secret shoppers that the presbytery sends around to see if they got a good welcome when they came to church this morning. I wonder whether they would have done. But that's not really what this is about. This is about the fact that actually in our gatherings and in our doing things together, we are expecting and looking for the divine. And we find the divine when we know and practice the presence of God, but when we know because we are shaped by Jesus that it's about loving each other and it's also always about bringing people in, inviting people in, serving people that are on the margins, caring for those that don't seem to believe the same things that we do, showing them the love of Jesus Christ. And compassion for those that are in prison and mistreated that comes out of empathy. Empathy. Because I've been there or I get what it means to, because that's how Jesus treats us, isn't it? Empathy, he understands, so we try to understand too. And then this, this, this chapter goes on, and I, I would invite you just to read it yourselves, but it goes on with some very practical things. It's going to talk about sex, money, and power. Your three favorite things. I spent a, a number of, of years being involved with the, the Church of Scotland in its disciplinary process. Uh, and we were the people that got sent in when somebody had been a naughty boy, a minister or elders, or there was a problem in a congregation to work out what we were going to do about it. I have to say, we were seeing the 1% of the worst cases. But I could tell you right now, before we went in, it always had to do with one of three things. Sex, money, or power trips. That's always what it was about. Every disagreement in churches almost always falls down to one of those three things. Now, what's, what's, what's Hebrews saying here? I'm going to be, be, be quite short with some of this stuff. First of all, the, one of the marks of a Christian community should be how it lives. How it lives in an immoral world. The Roman world that the early church lived in was very promiscuous. Not only was it very promiscuous, it was a place where people got married, but marriage was treated very, very lightly. You could get in and out of a marriage and no problem. It was easy come, easy go. Children, children were not always valued. In fact, the Romans had a practice. If you got too many, you just put one out. If you didn't want a baby, husband didn't want it, it was just put in the, in the rubbish tape. And what the Christians did in the midst of that is they lived differently. They lived differently. Because Jesus permeated their family lives and their treatment of their children and their treatment of their spouses. And some of those Christians had spouses that weren't Christians. It, it deals with that in, in the New Testament as well. Uh, and they were told to be the best husbands, the best wives that they possibly could be. And that was their sign of their witness. It's interesting what the Christians didn't do. They didn't go around engaging in a culture war going around in ancient Corinth saying, you're immoral, you're immoral, you're immoral, you're immoral. They transformed that society by living in the middle of it differently. And they did it with grace and they did it with forgiveness and sometimes they blew it and got it wrong because they were also the community that was constantly welcoming in the folk as we see in the gospel of Jesus who had blown it 
and got it wrong because they were a bunch of people who had also received forgiveness for all the things they'd got wrong. And then there's money. And basically the message here to Christians is to be content with what you have. Don't get engaged in the rat race. In that I need to work harder because I need to have the manicured lawn that the person next to me has. Or, or I need to have enough money to send the kids to, to 19 different clubs. Or whatever it is that you're involved in competing in. Don't get involved in it. It's interesting how the pastor deals with this. Because he doesn't say to them, don't be greedy. He rather says this to them. This whole need to acquire stuff. This whole need to, to do these things is because people are insecure. And I think this is absolutely right. One of the things that is, is, is at the heart of people's grasping at things and trying to hang on to things and get the best job and get the promotion and, and all the things that they're trying to do is insecurity. If I'm not doing this, what value do I have? If I haven't got as much as my neighbors, they'll look down on me. If I can't offer a party with as much as other people are offering, what are folk going to think? If I don't have enough for the future, then I'm worried about what happens later in life. It's all about insecurity. And what is the attitude to that that the preacher comes with? He says, you have in the promises of God a sure and a certain hope in Jesus Christ. And that's your security. It's not saying if you trust God, you'll, you'll get all the cash and you'll get all the things you need. It's not saying that at all. Hebrews has been talking about Christians being persecuted. But it is saying this. Your value doesn't come from what you have or what you do or what you acquire. It comes from the fact that the Lord has promised He'll never leave you. You're worried about what other people think are fitting in or, or, or being part of whatever group it is. They can't do anything to you. Don't be afraid. Your complete security in the Lord Jesus. And then he goes on from there to talk about leadership, the people who speak the Word of God to you. And I'm aware as I speak about this, you think I'm talking about myself as the preacher. But actually, we're talking about everybody within the community who helps you grow in your faith. It can be an elder who speaks words to you that bring you back to focusing on Jesus. It can be somebody in the family. It can be a Sunday school teacher, a youth leader, and they have a responsibility to encourage you, to encourage you to grow in your Christian faith. And by the way, I will say this, when I come to visit folk, we don't need to talk about the football. We can do. That's all right. I don't know about football. You can teach me. But actually, what if the conversation turned to how do we grow? What's that about? And the preacher, will, the, the letter will go on in verse 17 to say to submit to the authority of leaders. Now, I, I notice that that has to go with what he said already, which is to look to your leaders. Are they teaching the right things and are they living the right things? Don't follow people whose lives are a total mess and, 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 and you think, well, I have nothing to learn from that. I love the fact, though, he says, do this so that their work may be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. Can I, can I just say this? I, I love my job. I love being a minister, but I'll tell you one of the things. No, the only thing that's not joyful are Christians. 
When I'm stressed as a minister, and elders, you'll, you'll know the same thing as well. In fact, all of us that are in any type of, of, of role in the church will know. When you're really stressed, what's caused it? It's caused it because Christians are falling out. Or somebody's got a bee in their bonnet about something that shouldn't matter. Or somebody's wanting their own way. That's always what causes dissension and discord in churches. We can cope with what the world throws at us. We can cope with problems. We can do it together. But see, when we start, you know, they call it in military terms, friendly fire. When your own side's shooting you. That's the bit that's a real problem. And the problem when people do that, the backbiting, the criticism, the let's talk about the fact I want the music this way or the chairs that way or whatever else it is. The problem is we're not talking about how we grow in Jesus. We're talking about trivial stuff. And the other problem with it is that the person and the people that we're talking about, these are the very systems, elders, leaders, influencers, Christian folk that, that are involved in the leadership of the church that should be there to help us grow in the faith. And instead of that, they're firefighting over silly things. But if we can all just lift to Jesus and work together about how we grow in Him and spend less time on the other stuff, then we can cope. So ask yourself, with whatever it is you've got, is it bringing a joy to the leader when you come and share it. And by the way, when people come to me and want to share a problem that they want help with, that is a joy. That's not depressing. That's a privilege. It's the other stuff. Are we allowing this to be of benefit for ourselves? Because by the way, having those sort of conversations is not a benefit, not to the person that's receiving it and not to the person that's there. I I see again that little bit of theology from Frozen. Let it go. Let it go. Let that grace that we've experienced in Jesus turn the whole thing around. And then we finish by going back. Oh, sorry. We just talked about preachers and joy. Um, It's good for our hearts to be strengthened in grace, not eating ceremonial food, which is of no benefit to those who do. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. This is, this is quite important. First of all, our hearts strengthened by grace. What does that mean? That means we focus on everything He's been talking about, what Jesus has done for us that we did not deserve. And when we've got that in our hearts, it strengthens our trust in Him, but it also strengthens the way we live and forgive and show grace to each other. And then he talks about ceremonial foods. Now, what the ceremonial foods were was these Hebrews had come from a Jewish tradition, and they were tempted to go back into the rites and rituals of, of, of Judaism and think that that's what it was all about. Now, we are not tempted to do that. I, I think most of you probably like your bacon sandwiches. But there are other temptations, and that is that we get caught up in the rites, the rituals, the traditions of doing church. The traditions are fine. There's a place for them. But when we get caught up as if that's what we need to put our time into, that's what we need to reflect on, that's what we need to preserve, getting everything just right, then we are missing the point of the gospel of grace. And so often religion creeps back in rather than relationship with the living God. 
And what he says here in verse 10, we have an altar which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. You, the priests in the old days could only touch this tabernacle occasionally. We can walk right up to it. That's grace. That's what God has done. So just, just, just experience it in Jesus. Let it go. Love for one another and love for the Lord Jesus Christ are at the heart of what we are doing. This is the amazing part of the gospel. And he finishes by talking about Jesus and the fact that Jesus, when he died, died outside the city. He died in the rubbish dump, not in the center. He died where the thieves and the nobodies died. That's where he died for us. And sometimes we are hanging on because we think we belong in the center of the city, in the center of society, keeping our place, keeping our house, keeping our rituals, keeping our traditions, keeping it all up. No, Jesus went right out of that and gave himself for us. The indignity, the difference. And he says to us to come out and join them there because what we're trusting in is a city that we don't have, a city that's promised to us, the new Jerusalem at the end of the race. That is the reason that keeps us going and keeps us hoping. Amen. Let's, as we come to the table of the Lord, sing the words, brother, sister, let me serve you.